the Worldcraft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. A time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth. And we are your hosts for this delightful half hour. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Worldcraft Club. I'm Jonathan, one of the uh, guys here at Worldcraft Club helping bring this content to you. And here, alongside me today, sitting at our theoretical table of metaphysical nonsense, uh, I have Marcus. Marcus, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing pretty well. Pretty well. Got the coffee in me, so I'm ready to run. There you go. Good stuff. Good stuff. And then uh, over on the other side of the table, uh, which does not exist, is uh, Seth. Seth, how are you, man? I'm doing very well. Good. Very good. Excited for this topic. Yeah, absolutely. So I will go ahead and introduce it real quick. Um, There's a lot of influences from this topic in our storytelling and modern day culture. Uh, and it's almost like a callback to a uh, really popular style of storytelling and creative design within writing and other mediums. And what we're talking about today is a pulp tone. Uh, Marcus, would you mind telling me and the rest of the viewers here, what is pulp tone and where does it come from? Pulp. Oh. Uh, storytelling and world building. It's actually a very American style of storytelling and world building. And I know some listeners are going to hear that and already come up with a typical idea of what American storytelling involves. And I'm going to tell them right now, they're absolutely right. (laughs) Especially with this poll. Because uh, they would like take the kind of say the detective from the euro roots so like sherlock holmes where the detective is this gentleman that solves crimes on the side and the people that do the crimes aren't necessarily career criminals no american kind of took that and made it all gritty and made it you know put in the crime put in some drugs of violence and sex into it. The detective was no longer the kind of this gentleman. It was this every man down on his luck that solved crimes because all his other options were kind of uh, taken up. And why was that? Well, I think it's very important to understand kind of the origins of pulp and kind of where all the dominoes fall into one another because there's a lot to go in on how pulp was treated and managed uh so pulp was made for the working class uh and the height of pulp was during the great depression and people needed escapism so During that time, magazine companies underpaid their writers, printed on the cheapest pulp wood paper they could find, 
and they were able to sell their magazines for like 25 cents to as low as a dime. So people could afford to buy them. So you had families, the uh, people that would not spend on themselves to save money, but then they would have a few pulp magazines because that was their way of escaping their circumstance, escaping the, the, mm. their, their depression of their hard times. Now, because writers were underpaid, they had to write more to make ends meet. And the whole pulp atmosphere was a very competitive breeding ground for all these young writers. And with that, you had magazine stands filled, filled with pulp <laughs> magazines. Yeah, so many yeah. people around the country were exposed to this style. Mm -hmm. And they were exposed to, uh, if you look back to like all the artwork, the cover work of all these pulps, and they were very spicy uh, and very exciting and very colorful. Um, and that was in part due to the magazine's own pay structure promoted this kind of spicy tone. Because mm. if a scene from your story made the cover art, the writer got paid extra. So then writers would put in, you know, scantily clad uh, women for the hero to rescue. That's kind of where we get the uh, damsel in distress trope from. Mm -hmm. Because if they made the cover, they would get a bonus pay. And because you had all of this kind of working at the same time in this very competitive atmosphere where because pulp was designed to be cheap and focused on entertainment, not really uplifting or enriching anybody, it just entertained them. They didn't waste time on big ideas or scientific accuracies. and among them, you would kind of get these gems. And because so many people were exposed to them at this time, it inspired future generations to imitate these stories. Absolutely. And if you um, think about like some of the, uh, I mean, just researching this topic, right? I ran into the titles Dime Detective and The Shadow. And those are names that I've heard before. And I've never read those stories, but they were these pulp stories. And just from uh, culture, I've heard these names before. And it's like, okay, that's, that's where this came from. Um, yeah, it's a really evocative um, type of storytelling and also very evocative form of presentation too. And I think that's a lot of it is the aesthetics. Um, Seth, do you, do you have any, I, I know that you have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah. Pulp is, is arguably my favorite type of storytelling. Um, I want to be, I want to be careful there. Uh, <laughs> because it's it's really a, some specific pulp writers. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up reading Louis L'Amour, who is a pulp Western writer. I grew up reading Edgar Rice Burroughs, who is a science fiction slash, I don't know what you would call Tarzan, but he wrote Tarzan too. Um, so I, I spent a lot of my childhood, a lot of the fiction that I consumed in my childhood was, was pulp. And 
and it sort of built, honestly, it, it really did build the way I tell stories now. And I think, I think Marcus did a, a great job of, of sort of highlighting some of the reasons why pulp is the way it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it has, it has some really interesting world building implications though. A lot of the world building implications seem to be almost economic in, in their, their reasoning. Um, you know, you get paid extra if you make the cover art. So you have some exciting scenes, you know, with a half naked woman, even if, even if when you go to read the story, that woman is in the story incidentally and for a total of like four pages. Right. I just, I actually picked up a book um, called dark Canyon by Louis L'Amour on Saturday. And I read, read it again. And at the end of the story, I looked down at it and was like, okay, so the main character saves, saves the damsel in distress and they get married or they're, you know, they're going to get married. They've met each other a total of four times in the entire book, right? None of their interactions have been, have been longer than maybe four minutes. Right. Right. The longest interaction they they've had is the main character shows up to a dance. They dance and then he slips off into the darkness uh, halfway Ooh. through the song. Ooh, super edgy. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> so like that's the longest interaction they have. And yet they have this like romantic and fully committed relationship. That's so great. it's really interesting to see what, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting sort of, sort of tone and style. One, one thing that I think is, is important to remember is that, um, is that these, as Marcus said, these stories were written for a specific reason. These worlds were built for a specific reason. Uh, that reason was to to make them as interesting as possible to the most number of people as possible, right? This is really the roots of our pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, this is, this wasn't designed to be highbrow. This was designed to give as many people an escape as, as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so the decisions that are made for the world follow that follow that line of thinking right all mm -hmm. of the women are hot and all of the heroes are rugged mm -hmm. right because those were those were the tropes of the day you know you had the beautiful the beautiful woman and the heroic the rugged hero um though it, what's really fascinating is as as has been mentioned this is also where we get our tropes for the anti-hero becoming a popular staple of modern fiction. And so we really, Pulp really contributed a huge amount to our, the way we tell stories and the, um, the understanding we have about heroes and villains and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
And something to note too, I've, I've heard this argued by a few people and I think I want to clear the air right real quick before we get really into it. But pulp uh, often gets equated with like low quality writing. Mm-hmm. That's not true a lot of the time. There's definitely instances where it's like, you know, oh, like this thing doesn't exactly make sense or, you know, these two things don't really tie together. Um, Some of those things are stylistically implemented purposefully just because it's kind of fun. And that's a huge part of Pulp is that it's kind of fun and it's kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. It's not that it all exactly lines up and makes perfect coherent sense all the time. Yeah, you have to remember that pulp was unbelievably competitive, right? Right. You were submitting as an author writing pulp, you submit to the magazine, they pick the best stories, right? And you have to, you had to develop not only a particular tone, that would keep people coming back, but you had to develop stories that would keep people coming back. You had to develop a specific pacing that would keep people coming back. Really writing serially is, is a whole skill set. Yeah. And when we, um, I mean, if, if you were to go back and you were to compare Edgar Rice Burroughs and Louis L'Amour to modern writers, Mm-hmm. I would say that the majority of the time these guys would come out on top because they honed their craft year after year, word after word, writing just an unbelievable amount because often you got paid by the word too. Yeah. So if you could get a story in that was, that was, you know, 9,000 words or a story chunk that was 9,000 words, you got paid more than if it was, you know, 5,000 words. So these guys had to, to, to write as much as possible and make it as interesting as possible in order to rise to the top. And so yeah. you're good. I, John, I, I think that's a great point. You know, you're good mm-hmm. pulp writers. We're really good writers. Yeah. They're really good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think like what you were kind of uh, pointing at too is also this concept of like aesthetic, Right these stories often subscribe to um, an aesthetic or an appeal or a style. And that's a huge part of uh, both like our, uh, are the origins of pulp, but also modern day pulp where you have these new forms of media um, and new stories that are coming out. Uh, one of my favorite presentations of pulp fiction is not the movie Pulp Fiction, uh, but Pulp Fiction is great and does fall in line with some of this. But some of my favorite entries to this kind of area would have to be the um, archaeology adventure pulp. Uh, so what I mean by that is Tomb Raider, right? Indiana Jones, um, Nathan Drake from Uncharted. These characters and their settings are wild when it's like oh yeah we have an arc that can melt your face or 
we're discovering in a lost islands that traps people there to basically build this zombie army that eats the people they're trapped on this island mm-hmm. watch out for there's dinosaurs yeah 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 it's yeah. it's like that's right i mean it's there's a sense where it's like what the heck why but then you just kind of buy into it and once you buy into it it's fantastic and it's mm-hmm. such a ride um because it's built for enjoyment right yeah. that's and that's something that I think a lot of artists struggle with. Mm-hmm. They, there's this sense, this, in my opinion, incorrect sense that in order for, for something to be like good art, it has to be, it has to be sort of like highbrow, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, Whereas all of these, the most popular things are often not, they're not super precise. They're built for a feel. They're built for, for the emotion that it invokes, right? I, I know we always come back to, we always come back to Harry Potter. And I don't mean <laughs> to rag on Harry Potter, right? I like Harry Potter. <sighs> But it's but the world is built for the emotion and the feeling that it invokes. It's sure. not built for for the edification of this. This is what it is. It's not built for the edification of the author or the mm. creator. It's built for the edification or the the enjoyment of the reader or the the watcher, the person who is consuming it, and that just lends a whole different air to it right so Mm -hmm. when somebody thinks about getting lost in the world they don't think about getting lost in the details they think about the feeling they have if they're running away from dinosaurs or if they're diving into a dusty tomb and having to evade a bunch of traps right or if they're accidentally waking up the mummy king or you know whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just, it's a feel you get. Yeah. And that's something that's really incredibly hard to do with writing is conveying um, like a specific tone. Like, I mean, if you want to create something that's dark and dank, like you're going to use more drab words and colors and things. Um, But what can be really difficult is making something that's evocative and fun and interesting, no matter what that particular setting is. So, oh yeah, if you want dark and edgy and black and white, you know, murder mystery, trench coat in the rain, fedora style, that's fine. But to make it wild in action and inviting while also making it that kind of um, dark and edgy that's that's a really challenging task i've found when you know i'm doing writing or when i'm uh, portraying you know my games and dungeons and dragons and stuff um, incorporating those elements can be a big challenge but i i definitely like tip my hat to those um like ips that do that or even subscribe to elements of that uh, before before we recorded this episode, I was actually talking to James. I think some of you may have seen this conversation, but he mentioned, is Star Wars pulp? 
And I wrestled with this and I actually see Marcus nodding his head and I'm like, I think it has pulp elements. I'm not sure if it's pulp. And it's one of those things where you can have this like, I don't know, there's like different opinions on it. And I, I love these sorts of discussions because it's like, can something have pulp elements and not be pulp? Or if it has pulp elements, is it pulp? I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, my thing is that if it is not pulp, it is heavily inspired by. Because out of the pulp, um, I know when usually when you think of pulp, usually the first thing people think of is like Indiana Jones mm -hmm. or Laura Croft, kind of that very high adventure mm -hmm. uh, worlds. But pulp also had a big influence on what we know as sci-fi because pulp covered so many genres. And even though science fiction in the early days of pulp, again, weren't wrestling with scientific accuracies, weren't wrestling with high ideas of, of are we still human? Is human nature still the same in the future? It was, it borrowed heavily from the hard-boiled detective stories, and it focused on the man of action, traveling to these bizarre and fantastic worlds, you know, kicking butt, yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's where you have the Buck Rogers, the Flash Gordons, which also that whole Art Deco feel inspired the look of the early superhero comics. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until later, till uh, John W. Campbell, he was a science fiction pulp writer turned editor for one of the pulp magazines. Well, he had a background in physics. So he actually introduced more accurate science understanding in his stories. And when he became editor, he would shun any writer who did not understand science or understand people and basically single-handedly remolded science fiction to what we know as today. Now pair that with the pulp fiction of Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian at Red Sonia. All the people that are reading all these pulp things and basically had, you know, th these heroes of action kind of blended in and gave birth to what we know as science fantasy, which is totally what Star Wars is. Mm. And so that's where I make my argument, yes, Star Wars is pulp, if not heavily inspired by the pulp back in the old golden days of storytelling. It reminds me of the scene, and I mean, I know the original good Star Wars movies <laughs> rip, uh, <laughs> were uh, a, a lot different than like the more modern creations, but it almost reminds me of the warp jump scene in episode eight, um, where this thing happened, you know, where you have the one ship basically going warp drive into the enemy fleet and just that scene and the visuals that happen there. Very comic book in nature, right? And I remember just reading all of the articles online and stuff of people tearing the scene apart, like, oh, this wouldn't happen. Or like, you know, this, this would have, you know, created something else entirely. 
um, and thinking to myself, like, but it was cool. Um, I know. Like, I agree with you. Everybody tears up that part. But you remember when you saw it in the theater? Mm-hmm. What happened? Just Everybody just... in the theater went, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they successfully, successfully recreated that awe when, back when the Death Star exploded. Yep. Back in the original trilogy. Yep. And I tip my hat to them. In this yep. day and age where we just kind of like see special effects and like, you know, that's, that's CG. We've all seen it. They actually successfully recreated that entertainment, mm-hmm. that wild audiences mm. back in the day. Mm. And I love that. And that is pulp. Yeah. Screw the scientific accuracies. That scene was fun. Yeah. And everybody remembers it. Absolutely. I... So I- yeah. I would actually argue that Star Wars is not pulp enough. Uh, <laughs> and and what I'm going to say hopefully won't be too controversial, but um, number three or four, five, and six were, I think, very pulpy. I think they were, they fit the bill perfectly. I think that's why they were so popular. I think one, two, and three started to stray. Uh, seven, eight, nine <sighs> fell into the modern storytelling trap. And I think that the reason that we have no more good movies, people complain, I know people complain all the time about, you know, we have no more good movies, all the, all the movies that are coming out are sequels, like nobody's telling good stories, et cetera, et cetera. I think part of the problem is that, is that we have strayed from true pulp. Again, pulp is an aesthetic that is popular and mass, right? It has mass market appeal. And to create mass market appeal, you have to make some sacrifices. You have to. You can't cater to everybody. You cannot have a incredibly tight world that the purists love, right? You can't have um, sort of really intensely emotional storytelling. You can't have characters that are really deep and, and multi-dimension you can't have those things because every time you make one of those choices, you're going to lose some of your viewers or some of your readers, people mm-hmm. who aren't as committed and interested into it, right? You'll end up, you can create great movies, you can create great books, you can tell great stories, but you are, you are sort of limiting your end audience. And I think that's what happened to Star Wars. Right? They made some they made some movies that honestly are are fine. Yeah. They're just they don't live up to the originals because the originals had relatively one-dimensional characters who were on a space adventure and had some magic. Right? Like it's it was a blend of science fiction and fantasy. You had, you know, your space wizard who has an incredibly clear goal does this sort of superhuman thing, succeeds at the end. It's a very pulpy tone, 
But if you actually look at the characters, if you actually look at the storyline, we remember those books with or those movies with nostalgia. But just like when I go back and read Louis L'Amour, they aren't as good as my childhood. Yeah. Right? They are full of plot holes. When I go back and I look at pulp stories as an adult, I see the holes in them. I see the the errors. I see the world building continuity problems. I see the the lack of characterization and and the lack of depth in the characters' relationships. I see all of that now. I didn't see that when I read it the first time as a kid. You know, I didn't see that when I when I um when I when I remember the story, I don't see those holes. Mm-hmm. I think that we we struggle with the same thing with Star Wars, right? The first movies were fun and and they were very pulpy. And then as it got bigger and as as they made new ones, I think part of it is that the people writing this the movies evolved as storytellers. And so they started to get away from pulp. They started to try to create a better world and create more continuity. And at the end of the day, honestly, if your intent with your world or with your intent with your medium is to entertain, then you don't want to stray away from pulp, right? You want to embrace it wholeheartedly mm-hmm. because that's what it is. It's entertainment. It's it's purely designed to to give somebody an escape from their present circumstances and that is a different goal than i think the modern storyteller often pursues now i want to add because i know our listeners might be some of our world better listeners and writer listeners might be scoffing about why should I make a quote one dimensional character? Yeah. And you know, that's, that's lame. I want my character to be very multidimensional. The thing was, yes, these pulp heroes and characters were rather simple in their creation, but the biggest appeal and the key thing was that they were relatable. Mm. That is the draw. That's what hooked people. That's what, had those people kind of self-insert themselves into the main character and go on these amazing adventures. And I think, Seth, that what you were getting at was that writers are spending so much time making layers and layers and layers on their character so that it gets to the point that not that many people can relate to them. Uh, While you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, Alita Battle Angel. Like, Alita has this whole complicated backstory with this wars and she's a berserker or whatever, but I don't think they spend too much time with that, which I think would have lost more people. But she was relatable because she was basically a teenager, argued with her dad, and her and her boyfriend were trying to make ends meet to get a better life. That's very relatable yeah. and very yeah. charming at stuff at places. And I think that's what really hooked audiences and hooked me among other things to that character. So simplicity isn't 
a weakness or something to be frowned upon if done correctly. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, actually. You know, simple world building can be incredibly effective. Allowing space for people to insert their own thoughts and ideas onto a character can be just as, as impactful as building a really complex character. Because every time you identify um, a, an, a specific feature, you create a boundary, right? We talk about this all of the time. Mm -hmm. and, and this is this sort of, you know, we're talking about it in terms of characters right now, but it really feeds into world building as a whole. Every time you create a, a feature, you create a boundary. And that boundary then prevents people from bringing their own understanding or their own thoughts and projecting them onto the, the subject at hand. So if we're talking about a character, it prevents me from saying, oh, that tough cowboy character or that hard-bitten detective, I can relate to him. I can, even though I'm not a hard-bitten detective, there are, you know, this sort of every man that is at the center of the story is close enough to what I want to be in my head that I'm going to relate to them, right? Same thing with worlds. If you give people space, if you say these are the general features of it, all of a sudden people can bring their experience and they can insert it into the world and they can say, oh, that is close enough to what I want my world to be that I am now going to relate to it. Because a lot of times people aren't relating because of what ex actually exists, right? People don't relate to a fantasy story because of what exists. They relate to a fantasy story because of what they want to exist. Yep. You know, it reminds me of um, it reminds me of the Marvel Cinematic Universe a little bit, because statistically, if you look at how their growth worked as far as their interest in those movies, the growth slowed down around Age of Ultron and for a few movies afterwards, and um, also like including Civil War in that, mm -hmm. because. While people were excited about all the new heroes coming in, like Spider-Man and other people, um, for this like year and a little bit before then, you had these thickening plot developments, the the more complex world building, mm -hmm. and all of this stuff happening, and people were getting lost in it. And people were like, "I'm just here for you know the superheroes throwing punches." A lot, a lot of people were like that, right? And yeah. listen, I. I love the movies and it's like, I loved all of them, but I recognize that that's a problem that they had. And then towards the end of that era from DC, Wonder Woman dropped and Wonder Woman is crazy pulpy, <laughs> <laughs> but Wonder Woman is amazing. I just remember right. the fight scenes in that movie where they're like, yeah, cut the nonsense out with all these cut shots and whatnot. We're just going to do a continuous fight scene for like this 30 seconds period of Wonder Woman punching Nazis. And I let's remember, <laughs> yeah. That's all the character development go. you need. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not forget the, probably the most pulpy scene in that movie. Oh no, there's a sniper in the freaking bell tower. What do we do? 
we're going to throw a Wonder Woman at him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. that scene. It was so ridiculous. I had and, so much fun. Yeah. Oh, my word. And just like all of the scenes that, you know, were around that. I, it's just like, I, oh, man. I, I'm just getting excited. I need to calm down. Woo. <laughs> but I, like, I love it. Yeah, I just like, it, it's such a good movie, right? And it was so exciting. And one of the things about it is that Wonder Woman did not have super complex motives for fighting Nazis in that movie, right? Wonder Woman was like, hey, these are bad dudes out here. I'm going to fight them, right? And she goes out there and fights them, right? She gets up out of the trench and charges that line because why not right that's what she yeah does. there was there was no you know long drawn out discussion about the moral implications of of good and evil right, right? there was a very clear cut line of this is good that's evil mm-hmm. which is which is i think a feature of pulp that often gets lost in our worlds and mm-hmm. is one of the reasons that we have so much trouble with our worlds because people going into them get lost in this kind of quagmire of of moral structure and sorry i'm getting on my soapbox here uh no get on it but they get lost in, in this quagmire of of moral structure and there's no clear understanding of a hero here's the thing pulp introduced in in a in a popular way the anti-hero what's interesting about a pulp anti-hero is that they are clearly doing good. There is a clear line. They might be a bad person, but Mm. they do good, right? Yeah. This is very different than our modern understanding of the anti-hero where maybe they do bad. Those Mm. people aren't heroes. They're just characters who happen to be at the center of a story. Yeah. Pulp really does revolve around, and I love that you brought up Wonder Woman because it is probably it is probably the best example of a good pulp story yeah. in our modern time. But this this clear line of saying, okay, there is good and there is evil, and I know from in world building circles right now, there's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of discussion. Some of it good, some of it bad about evil and, uh, and races and, and how people play that out in their world. And honestly, like to be to full transparency, not all pulp is good, right? There are some elements in pulp that are simply not, not appropriate yeah Yeah. they are so like a great example of this edgar rice burroughs all of his tarzan stuff super racist yep okay (laughs) so if you actually go back and read like i love tarzan but if you read through those books there's a lot of racism that you have to deal with um and when i give them to my kids because i will i will give them to my kids it will be with a real discussion about this is where this worldview was wrong right Yep. The noble white man and the savage African are tropes that he played on all the time, right? The evil German was another trope that he played on all the time because he was writing during, you know, during this period where the Nazis were a threat, 
And mm-hmm. so all of his bad guys happen to speak German. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of elements like it. I, I don't want to come across as if, as if these writer, these pulp writers were, you know, saints. No, they, they were writing in their time. And a lot of what was, a, a lot of the prevailing sentiment in their time was frankly disgusting. Um, but the way they constructed their stories with that clear good and that clear evil gave the person who was consuming the story the ability to put themselves on the right side in their head, right? Mm. I am going to, I'm going to empathize with the, with John Carter of Mars, right? Who's fighting off the hordes to save his princess, Mm -hmm. right? That is a clear good. Even though we could get into like, okay, he's really an alien invader coming into this world and he knows nothing about their politics and she's a oppressive tyrant or is part of the oppressive tyrant's family and these people are just trying to win their freedom, you know, et cetera. But no, no. What we are excited about in the book is John Carter beating up a bunch of forearm dudes yeah. because it's awesome. Right. Yeah. Oh, yes. so, so I think, I think though that this, this bleeds over into world building in a big way. I am a huge proponent of, of building clear good and evil. And I think that is one of the things from pulp that is the most beneficial. I'll get off my soapbox here. Um, but I think it's the most <laughs> beneficial for, for world building. I think having clear senses of good and evil simply removes a huge amount of work that the reader or the consumer has to do in order to plug themselves into your story or into your world. And this is interesting getting into how, you know, fairy cake, you know, plugs into all of this. And, you know, when we discuss fairy cake, um, we we mean like what's the essence and you know central component of your world building that's going into um what you're writing and what you're creating and i think with pulp there's a lot of really cool intricacies and things that we can draw from to go into fairy cake and i think this fairy cake in particular is going to be a very interesting and dynamic blend of flavors <laughs> but um yeah so here's here's the question right i mean we've discussed the different ips you know we've discussed you know wonder woman and how in love with the story of wonder woman and wonder woman we are <laughs> but what what of these um, stories and things if we're wanting to make something pulpy what do we need to do as world builders what do we need to do as writers i think the one thing that i am fascinated with pulp and i think our listeners can really take away is that simplifying things doesn't necessarily mean that your story isn't going to have longevity. And I think, I know in the past, Pulp was basically treated as well 
as the material it was printed on. It was made to be cheap, it was made to be disposable. But, I mean, I'll bring up um, Howard again. He created Conan the Barbarian. He created Red Sonia and basically, you know, created the genre of grimdark as we know it. And, you know, if anybody was a fan of the Xena and Hercules shows, you know, Howard inspired everything about swords and sorcery that came after. And then you have this other guy that would write in, basically do a self-insert about these weird, horrific uh, monsters that no one's heard about because he was writing what he had nightmares about and Mm -hmm. created what we know as cosmic horror. H.P. Lovecraft started in pulp. And how everybody wants to (laughs) write in Cthulhu as a president now. Right. So basically pulp really gave a nice platform of where you weren't tied down by accuracies. You weren't really tied down by complexities. There was a clear good guy, a clear bad guy. And that really helped the pace. That really helped the understanding to grip audiences from page one. And that's what it was designed to do. And because it's like, I I see it as for any uh, illustrators and artists of that, people that would doodle in their notebooks at school, they would come up sometimes with these really neat doodles, but they were on lined paper. But any artist that has gone through that, it's like, okay, I'm going to get a sketchbook and you have this blank paper. And there's that hesitation. Mm-hmm. Some, of, some of us would hesitate because Ooh. now there's that weight of like, okay, this is a blank paper. It's not going to yep. be sullied by lines. Oh. Make it good. Oh. And you overthink it. And then you just go oh. back to your, your notes and then doodle <laughs> some great thing on the side of your, of your physics notes or whatever. That's Man, what I feel that was. so it, hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what Pope was. It, it alleviated kind of the pressures of making something perfect and just made it fun. Like we said, um, John Carter of Mars. When I first heard about John Carter of Mars and Princess of Mars, I thought it was on a completely different made-up planet you know, before I saw the title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wait, this, all this crap's supposed to be on Mars? That's not, that's not, oh, well, this is fun. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's mm-hmm. like this whole civilization, you know, that was just made up, mm-hmm. you know? And I think it gives you the freedom of really making your worlds just how you want them to be. And just make them fun and people will, yeah, sure, people will complain or whatever. But I think everybody will agree that it's fun. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I think that's that's really the core meaning, is to not really overthink yourself too much. And go ahead and go off the, over the top of it, you know? Just, just, yeah. just make the ride fun. Yeah, and I think that's actually a little bit of what I was going to say, too, is like, don't be afraid to make it fun, right? Don't be afraid to make it something that you want it to be. Um, I'm going to say something highly controversial. Um, not, only yourself, 
Metal Gear Solid Five is a pulp game. It's not a stealth action game. Um, <laughs> don't at me, please. Don't kill me on Twitter. Um, but <laughs> like, if you know, if there's a very big tonal shift from Ground Zeroes, um, where you're dealing with a lot of of darkness and grittiness, and the be- very beginning of Metal Gear Solid Five, the the main game, uh, Phantom Pain when you're basically going through a hospital and it's just a massacre to when you're flying in on a chopper blasting rebel yell by billy idol um over a loudspeaker strapped to this helicopter and then you pull out that mini gun while you're wearing a chicken hat because you died a few times and just start wasting an enemy base that is pulp right that's fun there's something ludicrous about this it's like this isn't very realistic but like it's it's fun right um i when i'm running my dungeons and dragons games i find that when i'm having fun just making stuff happen my players are having fun i ran one of the best games i've run last night and it was just because my players were doing something really crazy and i was just going along with it right and i was just like all right this is this is what's going to happen you're going to transform into uh, a goblin and convince all the goblins that you're on their side and like could i have stopped it oh yeah like at any point i could have stopped it but would that have been fun not quite so with the world building oh like if you're going for a more pulpy tone allow your worlds to be pressed in a little bit on its boundaries so that it can be fun and it can be interesting in that way because your readers are going to enjoy that and for the energy spent saying well that's not realistic they're going to then drop that and just continue having fun with it and have way more energy focused on it being fun it's like punk music yes (laughs) Yep. You're only using three chords. I only need three chords to say F you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, yeah. I would I think you guys nailed it. I mean, I think that you know, keeping clarity, keeping simplicity, um, not overthinking, allowing some some wiggle room in your story or in your world to to maximize the fun, right? Mm-hmm. To, to allow people to just have a good time. Don't, doesn't need to be super serious, right? The point of fiction is ultimately to provide enjoyment to the people who are interacting with it. And the only, the only caveat I would add is that pulp has never been, I don't want to, give the impression that pulp was absent of moral, right? If you have an intent with your story, pulp is actually probably one of the most effective methods for conveying it. You, when you, when I read stories as a kid, that's where I learned about courage, right? Reading about these Western heroes in my Louis L'Amour books who were, overcoming great odds and we're working hard and we're getting into these impossible situations where they're 
in the middle of the desert with no water surrounded by Indians, right? And fighting through, mm-hmm. doing what needs to be done. All of those are really simple moral lessons that came through in these pulpy books. Yeah. So, so it's not as if pulp is simply the abandonment of, of moral or um, of, you know, ability to convey intent. It's just couching it or it's just, it's just putting it in terms that everybody can relate to because it's not so hyper-specific that, that you exclude Mm. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to quickly just go over what we talked about since we're just about out of time. Um, so we talked about pulp and some of its origins today. Uh, and uh, Marcus did a great job outlining its origins and being printed on just cheap pulp paper and giving that sense of escapism and adventure and fun to people in a time where they needed that and how it evolved into... Uh, influencing an entire culture of storytelling Um, and a world building sense for fairy cake. We talked about how your stories can have like a more stricter adherence to good and evil and more uh, like clear cut uh, divisions in order for your readers to feel like they they can side uh, with someone or some presence of heroes. Uh, We talked about, uh, keeping the notebook lines um, and how in being creative, don't feel uh, intimidated by creating this big uh, thing that being able to uh, keep it simple and keep the fun in creating those uh, stories is really important. Um, and then also just like the fun and adventure of just creating something that you want to create and not worrying about um, having to convey a very highbrow message or anything like that. Mass appeal isn't bad. Fun isn't bad. Create something that you want to create with your world building uh, and get to work in your worlds with that. And I think that about wraps it up. So thank you for listening to the Worldcraft Club. Uh, I've been Jonathan. I'm Marcus. And I'm Seth. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time. Thank you for joining Seth and I on the Worldcraft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.